The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. You'll dig deeper or you'll do without. This is Thursday, October 26th, 2017. Thank you very much for caring enough to listen and for supporting this independent news when you bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. 34%. That's how much your monthly insurance premium will go up next year under Trump Care. An independent analysis says the declarations of Donald Trump about health care and the various Republican efforts in Congress will drive up health insurance costs by double digits next year, whether your plan is silver, bronze, gold, or platinum. Most people have silver. That one's going up by 34% on average. Trump had promised that window shopping for plans would save customers money. This independent study indicates the opposite effect. The experts at the consulting firm of Avalair Health say they've already crunched the numbers from the 2018 policies being offered by Trump's Health and Human Services Department, and this is what they found. Those plans went online yesterday, so you can see for yourself. Open enrollment begins next week for the 2018 coverage under what remains of the Affordable Care Act, and the Trump administration's schedule for that enrollment could lock millions of people into insurance they don't want or can't afford under Trump Care's higher rates. People who already have ACA marketplace plans are automatically re-enrolled in that same plan, but this year without the usual reminder to shop for a better deal. This year, under Trump Care, automatic enrollment will shut down before many customers can make changes. The Trump administration has cut short the sign-up season, moving up the deadline, leaving most online marketplace customers with no way to switch plans. This year's sign-up deadline is December 15th, which cuts the sign-up season in half. The season used to end on January 31st. The Trump administration did this without announcing it. It was Washington Post reporters who brought us this information. It had already cut the number of enrollment assistants by about 40% Trump Care had, making it even harder for Americans to get answers about their health care choices. The Trump White House has cut health care outreach efforts by 90%. Trump has also attacked the government marketplace by cutting billions of dollars in reimbursements to the insurance companies that allowed Americans to get health care for less if their finances demanded it. And Trump further damaged the marketplace by letting people and small businesses buy cheaper less comprehensive insurance. Also, with the repeated attacks on Obamacare from the White House and the Congress, the number of Americans without health insurance rose from 11% to nearly 12.5% this past year. Before the Affordable Care Act, 18% of us had no health insurance, and the ACA cut that by 7%. We are now moving forward into the past. A report from the Congressional Budget Office says the bipartisan health care bill on the table would save money for taxpayers and wouldn't have much effect on the number of people covered, unlike Trump Care, which will, with 34% rate hikes, drive people out of the marketplace. The CBO report also says the bipartisan plan, aimed at stabilizing the marketplace, would lower the federal deficit by nearly $4 billion without much of a rate increase. Trump has brushed off the bipartisan plan. Democrats, meanwhile, have two new proposals, one to force drug companies to negotiate their prices and one to let states expand Medicaid. The state's options bill has 17 co-sponsors in the Senate, but both proposals have little chance of passing in this Congress and with this president.
After Wall Street trashed our economy, Congress created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. The Bureau has, over the five years that followed, developed a rule that allows Americans to band together in a class action lawsuit against the big Wall Street firms. Republicans don't like that rule, so they have voted to not only remove it, but to make it law that that rule can never be revived. They say the rule, which was due to go into effect next year, would have opened up Wall Street firms to a litany of expensive lawsuits over the kinds of shady business practices that crashed the economy, killed jobs, and foreclosed homes. The purpose of the rule was to do what no other rules or laws do, discourage those Wall Street firms from the shady behavior it's demonstrated again and again with disastrous consequences. Banks and credit card companies have included arbitration clauses in their customers' contracts to prevent class action suits. And thanks to 50 Republican votes and a tip-in vote by Vice President Mike Pence, it will stay that way. And individual credit customers will be without an important tool to fight deceptive or predatory practices. It's a win for Republicans, but it's even better news at Wells Fargo and Equifax. When he announced it, Trump said his tax reform plan would not benefit the wealthy. Trump's Treasury Secretary said it would. When you're cutting taxes across the board, said Steven Mnuchin, it's very hard not to give tax cuts to the wealthy with tax cuts to the middle class. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders explained this contradiction, saying the tax cuts for the rich are, quote, not the focus of the plan. Barely a third of us support Trump's plan, just 34 percent, according to a CNN poll. Fewer than one in four think their families will benefit. Nearly a third said things will be worse for it. Nearly one in four said nothing will really change. The House is expected to vote on that budget plan today. As Republicans scramble to make up the losses from their planned $1.5 trillion tax cut, they apparently plan to break a promise made by Trump not to mess with your 401k. Let's go to the Twitter. There will be no, N-O in all caps, change to your 401k, tweeted the president, continuing, this has always been a great and popular middle-class tax break that works, and it stays, exclamation point. But the head of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, Republican Chairman Kevin Brady, says he plans to mess with 401ks in the tax bill he's preparing as we speak. Brady says he's, quote, working very closely with the president, who, as mentioned earlier, promised to leave 401ks alone. Lawmakers are not listening to the president. The head of the Senate Finance Committee, Republican Orrin Hatch, has already said he opposes Trump's plan to protect 401ks. Republicans are dead set on killing the deduction for the 401ks of 50 million Americans, even if it means breaking their leader's promise. Republicans are looking to cut $400 billion in deductions to offset the loss from this $1.5 trillion tax cut. We still don't have the details of the Trump-publican tax plan. But Republicans say it will simplify the tax code and give everyone a raise with bigger paychecks. And just in time for the 2018 midterm elections. Chairman Brady says he'll introduce the plan next week. House Speaker Paul Ryan says he hopes to pass the plan by the end of next month and get it through the Senate by New Year's Eve. Some budget experts agree with the Democrats' claim that the Trump-publican plan will mostly benefit the richest people with taxes actually going up on the middle class and upper middle class. Republicans also want to remove the deduction for paying your state and local income taxes. If the Trump-publican plan fails, Lindsey Graham says... That will be the end of us as a party if you're a Republican. He says, and you don't want to simplify the tax code and cut taxes. What good are you to anybody? 
the House, which has its own budget plan, votes on the Senate plan today, as I mentioned. Trump has already endorsed the Senate plan and is eager to sign what would be his first major piece of legislation. One thing by the end of the year would be better than a zero. We've been looking for the opportunity to do this literally for years, said Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, adding, we now have a president who will sign it. Even without details, Republicans are dead set on rewriting the tax code. It may be the only thing keeping Republicans together, such as they are. Mitch McConnell concluded his comment with, we're going to concentrate on what our agenda is and not all these other distractions. He's talking about this. Over the past week or so, the politics of Trump have come under fire from one prominent Republican after another. Former President George W. Bush was followed by Senators John McCain, Bob Corker, and Jeff Flake. Besides being prominent, well-respected Republicans, they have in common two other things. They each have nothing to lose, and they all strongly dislike Donald Trump and his methods. None of these four prominent critics is running for office again, so they have no party to please and no campaign money to raise, no voters to entice. Note that Republicans who have something to lose are less inclined to speak and more likely to protect the man who supports their agenda and pleases the Republican voter base. But the two prominent Republicans with nothing to lose chose to speak on the same day, Tuesday of this week. Just days before, John McCain had fired a return shot at Trump by criticizing wealthy people who avoided the Vietnam War because, quote, they had a bone spur. A bone spur is not coincidentally precisely how Trump got his draft deferment. And then came Tuesday of this week. Senator Bob Corker has skirmished with Trump before, calling this White House an adult daycare center. That day began with Corker on the Today Show calling Trump's Capitol Hill tax talk and lunch with senators a photo op and saying that if Trump really wants to help, he should tweet less and let congressmen do their jobs. Trump immediately took to Twitter, of course, to call Corker a lightweight and incompetent. Corker tweeted back, same untruths from an utterly untruthful president. Hashtag alert the daycare staff. Although he supported Trump earlier, Corker was asked if he'd do it again. No, he said, no way. By afternoon, all eyes turned toward Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, a longtime Trump critic who was announcing he would not run for re-election. After just one term, Flake will leave Washington 14 months from now. Appearing nervous, Flake spoke out passionately against Trump and the Republicans who support him. In clear references to his party's president, 10 months into that president's first term, a once rising star of the Republican Party was on his way out, disgusted by Trump. Flake slammed what he called destructive politics, indecent discourse, and, quote, the coarseness of our leadership. He accused fellow Republican lawmakers of complicity in all this, in all that Trump has brought, and called it unacceptable and called for it to end. Flake talked of a flagrant disregard for truth or decency and warned of a threat to our democracy, a degradation of our politics, corruption of the spirit. Flake says he has grandchildren to answer to. He urged other Republicans to follow him. There are times we must risk our careers, said Flake, adding, now is such a time. These were powerful statements from powerful senators, and Flake made his on the floor of the Senate. It cannot be underscored enough what a big deal it is that four prominent Republicans in a week or so have slammed the president who now leads their party and before he's even been on the job a year. It can also not be underscored enough that lawmakers who have something to lose 
have gone back to working on the agenda they share with a president who's still popular among Republican voters. For the fourth straight Halloween season, Chapman University has asked Americans what scares them, what their fears are. Our fears have changed in the Trump era. Sure, this year's number one answer is the same as last year's, government corruption. But the fear of World War III rocketed up the chart from 17th place last year to 7th place this year. Enduring a terrorist attack was our second greatest fear last year. This year, Trump cares in second place. Not having money for the future was third from the top last year. This year, it's water pollution. Last year, our fourth place fear was the government restricting guns. This year, it's the fear that our drinking water is also polluted. Fear of government gun restrictions fell to 23rd place. Air pollution made the top 10 this year, two notches behind climate change. Terrorism and terror attack both made the top 10 last year. Neither made it on the list this year. We are, according to the survey, not very afraid of zombies, ghosts, or clowns. The survey was taken before Stephen King's It was released, so clowns maybe. On Monday, North Korea warned the U.S. of an unimaginable blow at any time. Yesterday, an angry senior North Korean official told CNN the world should take literally its threat to test a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific Ocean. That original threat came within hours after Trump had threatened in a United Nations speech to totally destroy North Korea. The reinforcement of the North Korean threat came yesterday after Trump bragged Sunday on Fox Business News Channel that the U.S. is prepared for anything. We'll see what happens, Trump said, adding, We are so prepared, like you wouldn't believe. You'd be shocked to see how totally prepared we are if we need to be. Trump will travel to Asia next month, including a stop in South Korea. His planned trip to the demilitarized zone that separates South and North Korea, however, has been canceled. As for America's readiness, a new poll shows that 88% of us see North Korea as a very or moderately serious threat. And because the Air Force is short by 1,500 pilots, Trump has just recalled 1,000 pilots to active duty. Trump trolls a grieving widow while not honoring or explaining the deaths of four Green Berets, the latest on the Russia investigation, climate change, and sexual harassment. After this, get happy ears when you pop in a brand new pair of earbuds from tweakedaudio.com, especially those new Hegon Sport earbuds with the silicone caps to help them stay in place. They're water-resistant with a tangle-free cord and a travel pouch. Now, like other Tweaked Audio products, the Hegon Sport Buds include an inline mic, a gold-plated plug, and, of course, extra gels. The Hegons are orange and gray, but Tweaked Audio's other earbuds come in a range of colors and materials, including wood. You can even get buds in sets of two or three, and Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. And you certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. And the shipping is free anywhere on the planet. And because everything sounds better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com and all my other great sponsors or through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. On October 4th, we learned that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had called Donald Trump an effing moron a few months before that in a meeting at the Pentagon. That led to more fake news tweets from Trump. 
That same day, Trump had visited survivors and first responders in Las Vegas and was, by evening, on Air Force One headed back to D.C. It was during that flight that news came from Africa that several U.S. special ops soldiers had been killed in the African country of Niger. Trump got a briefing from John Kelly at just after 8 p.m. on October 4th. Trump did not make a statement about our loss that evening, nor has he made one since. In the three weeks that have passed since October 4th, Trump has teased about the calm before the storm, played golf, gone to a Republican fundraiser, again threatened North Korea on Twitter, feuded with nothing-to-lose Senator Bob Corker, told Mike Pence to leave the Colts game if there was kneeling, played some more golf, slammed the NFL and ESPN on Twitter, cut off Obamacare subsidies, decertified Iran in the nuclear deal, had dinner at his own hotel, played even more golf, and then, on October 16th, had a news conference in the Rose Garden, in which he said he felt badly. Over these 21 days, Trump has decided not to pay tribute to the fallen, nor has he explained what they and 800 other U.S. soldiers were doing in Niger. Trump apparently believes the fallen knew what they signed up for. At least that's what he told the widow of a soldier whose body wasn't recovered from that ambush until two days after the attack. Trump was trying to demonstrate or at least replicate compassion by making that call and others. But he'd only done so after questions from reporters after what had happened in Niger. The questions he still hasn't answered, just as he only wrote a promised $25,000 check to a Gold Star father after a Washington Post report that he had broken his promise to do so. It was Trump who had steered the conversation toward how he handles condolences. That was his topic. It was Trump who had diverted attention to former presidents, falsely accusing them of being unreliable with condolences. It was Trump who, according to the widow of LaDavid Johnson and other witnesses, told her LaDavid knew what he signed up for and did so without including his name. That widow, Maisha Johnson, says she was again in tears as she heard a tone from this president as she rode to the airport to retrieve her husband's sealed casket. The call was on speaker. The family member who had raised Maisha could hear that call, as could Congresswoman Federico Wilson, a family friend who was also in the limo. It was the congresswoman who blew the whistle on Trump's clumsy condolence call, and that set off another distraction now that Trump's claims about former presidents had already been disproven. The denials and tweets and feuding would continue for more than a week, providing a distraction that has more staying power than the first. Trump was undercutting the widow again as recently as yesterday, saying he remembered LaDavid Johnson's name right from the start of that now-famous conversation. The questions about what happened in Niger remain, and among them, why the body of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson was found two days after the ambush, about a mile from the site of the ambush. The three other American soldiers who were killed and the two who were wounded were carried out of that scene, but Johnson was not among the recovered. Had he been left behind, and if so, how and why? Was he alive or dead when the other dead and wounded were lifted out? But as you've heard, there are many questions to be answered about the entire operation. Here's what we know so far. A dozen U.S. soldiers were on a reconnaissance mission, assisted by about 30 soldiers from Niger. They were looking for an ISIS recruiter. The soldiers stopped in a village for food and water and to meet with the village elders. U.S. intelligence had told the Green Berets that an attack wasn't likely, but then the villagers delayed the soldiers' departure. Some of the soldiers, Nigerian soldiers perhaps, spotted some men on motorcycles who appeared to be involved in a terror attack, but it was a fake terror attack that lured our soldiers into that ambush. 
The men on motorcycles may have even been local villagers. Quoting the mayor of Tongo Tongo, terrorists have never lacked accomplices among local populations. Pursuing those motorcycles was not part of our mission, and the Wall Street Journal reports the four Americans who were killed had only limited combat experience. For one, it was his first time overseas. The soldiers from the U.S. and Niger came under attack by about 50 fighters from a local ISIS splinter group, and it was apparently a setup. For an hour, the American soldiers fought but did not call for help. The attack only ended when the attackers were buzzed by French fighter jets. Under investigation by Congress, the Pentagon, and the FBI is, was a massive intelligence failure to advise the soldiers it was probably safe to enter the village of Tongo Tongo, even though the village is sympathetic to ISIS? Had the Pentagon not provided enough support for its troops on the ground, why was there no surveillance of this mission? Why wasn't a rescue team standing by? And then there's the bigger question of what our mission might be in Niger. Ranking senators from both parties, including Lindsey Graham and Chuck Schumer, say they didn't even know we had 800 troops in Niger, and they should know being on those committees. So the investigating has begun, as you heard, and it now also includes the FBI. Senator John McCain, who heads the Senate Armed Services Committee, says he may request subpoenas to get answers without waiting for the Pentagon's findings. And McCain says there will be no approval of any Trump nominees until he gets answers. Trump still isn't talking, at least not about the deadliest military operation of his presidency. And there is the related mystery here worthy of our attention. It's about the Trump administration's relationship with Niger's neighbor to the east, Chad. Although Trump's third and latest Muslim ban has been put on hold by federal judges, Chad was included on that list this time, uh, among the other nations. And although we appear to know now why that happened, we still don't know how it was allowed to happen. It happened because Chad ran out of the specially marked security paper it uses for passports, just as the Trump administration was demanding nations prove they should not be on the travel ban list by providing sample passports. No sample, no travel. Observers in this country and around the world were stunned and confused and broadsided with the inclusion of Chad in Trump's Muslim ban. Over the past four years, Chad was our best friend in Northern Africa. And despite being another poor country, Chad's military plays a huge role in our fight against ISIS, not just in Chad, but in Mali, Nigeria, and Niger. Chad's military is the best in the region at beating back ISIS, and it had a powerful diplomat in its president. And Chad had hundreds of troops in Niger until a few weeks ago when Trump included Chad in his Muslim ban and his administration declared Chad hadn't done enough to fight terrorism in its own borders, even though Chad's better at it than any other country in the region that didn't make the travel ban list. Chad expressed its own surprise and disappointment and pulled its troops out of Niger just days before the ambush that killed four of America's best soldiers. While the French who stopped the attack on our troops have rewarded Chad for its efforts, the U.S. is punishing Chad in spite of its efforts. We may have lost a valuable friend in Chad. We may have even made a new enemy, thanks to including Chad in that Muslim ban. The Trump administration's National Security Council has no member assigned to handle Africa, which is an entire continent occupied by more than 50 countries. But the nation's attention this week had been focused instead on a distasteful and unnecessary battle between Trump and those close to the soldier left behind. Trump has denied he failed to mention LaDavid Johnson's name and his clumsy call to Johnson's widow. 
and that was after the widow had finally spoken for the first time publicly about that call this week. Now Trump was personally taking on the widow of one of the fallen. That widow, Maisha Johnson, says she had nothing to say to the president in that phone call and still doesn't. She just wants answers about her husband's death and the circumstances that for two days left him behind. She wants to know if LaDavid's body is really inside the casket she buried. Quoting her, it could be empty for all I know. It was Trump who first tweeted he could prove he hadn't said, knew what he signed up for, again raising the possibility of a White House recording system. The White House later admitted there was no proof and again said there is no taping system. Later, Trump Chief of Staff John Kelly would defiantly tell reporters that LaDavid Johnson did know what he signed up for and that it was he, Kelly, who'd advised Trump on how to handle condolence calls. Another Trump lie, the one about proving the allegation wrong, had come full circle. Kelly also launched a false allegation of his own against the Florida congresswoman who'd blown the whistle on Trump's insensitive call to Maisha Johnson. Kelly recalled attending a ceremony to name a Florida FBI building after two fallen agents and claimed that Congresswoman Frederica Wilson had hogged the spotlight at that event, bragging about getting the federal grant to build that field office. Now the White House chief of staff, the one brought in to stabilize the Trump presidency, was also caught in a lie. Video from that FBI dedication shows Congresswoman Wilson talking not of herself, but of the fallen agents whose names would grace that building. Wilson had no reason to take credit for the money. It had been authorized before she was even in Congress. The adult voice of the White House had, like his boss, and maybe because of his boss, been caught in a dirty lie. It was part of a White House attack on the Congresswoman by the president who'd called her wacky, his chief of staff who called her an empty barrel, his press secretary who called Congresswoman Wilson all hat and no cattle. Wild West references ran rampant as the Trump White House verbally lynch mobbed a member of Congress who had made Trump look bad. When Wilson pointed out John Kelly's lie about the FBI event, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders told reporters it would be highly inappropriate to question Kelly's false claim. He's a general after all. The president had been offended. Sure, four Green Berets were dead and their families bereaved and questions unanswered. But the president had been offended. The Republican National Committee, now figureheaded by Donald Trump, has spent nearly $400,000 on lawyer fees since Inauguration Day, but not for the reasons other campaigns have paid lawyers. This year, the RNC has been paying those hundreds of thousands of dollars to lawyers defending Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. in the Russia investigation, nearly $400,000 so far. It had been observed that no one else who's lawyered up for this investigation, for the vice president to the first press secretary, no one else was getting help paying their legal bills, and that might have created a loyalty problem for Trump as the Russia investigation closes in as it continues to do. Well, that has now begun to change a little, or at least appear to change. Trump has now promised to spend $430,000 of his own money to help pay the legal fees of the other names caught up in the Russia probe. 430000 is just a drop in the bucket for the half-dozen people who've needed or will need millions of dollars' worth of legal help to even answer questions from investigators. And over the weekend, a White House official told the Washington Post that just because 400000 is virtually the same amount of money the RNC has spent on the Trumps, Jr. and Sr., this is not a reimbursement. There are no plans 
say, Trump spokespeople to reimburse the Republican Party for Trump's legal bills. But the bigger point might be a question of ethics. Should the possible target of an investigation be paying the legal fees of witnesses in that investigation? That's the question posed by Walter Schaub, the man who headed the government ethics office until he realized he was wasting his time in the Trump administration. In the meantime, these are only words. It's only a pledge to offer that money with no plan for distribution to the people who will need it. The offer comes from a supposed deal maker who's proven to be more of a deal breaker in Washington. Lawmakers in both parties find him untrustworthy when it comes to Trump's offers and deals inconsistent and easily distracted, prone to diversions and Twitter tantrums. So that loyalty thing still hangs in the balance. The latest developments in the Russia investigation include a new additional investigation into possible money laundering by Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan is conducting that probe in conjunction with special counsel Robert Mueller. It was Mueller's investigators who got a warrant and entered Manafort's home while he was sleeping to get at documents they feared he would destroy. Manafort's being squeezed on several fronts in hopes he'll flip and become a witness for the prosecution. Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, met with the House and Senate Intelligence Committee behind closed doors for six hours Tuesday in what's described as a contentious hearing. Cohen is a person of interest since he helped negotiate a never-executed plan to build a Trump Tower in Moscow during the election campaign in which Russia was doing what it could to help Trump and hurt Clinton. Cohen's name also came up in the Christopher Steele dossier that inspired much of the Russia investigation, much of that dossier proving to be true, with none of it disproven. The dossier says Cohen had traveled to Prague to meet with Russians during the campaign, an allegation Cohen has denied. The House Intelligence Committee also heard for several hours on Tuesday from the Trump campaign's director of digital operations, Brad Parscale. Parscale worked with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in running the campaign's three-tiered data operation. Parscale's employer, Cambridge Analytica, is run by a Trump supporter who'd emailed a top campaign donor that he'd emailed Julian Assange to get hold of the emails from Hillary Clinton's private server. To put it another way, a data company supporting Trump was paying a company to get hold of Clinton's emails from WikiLeaks after Trump had publicly called upon the Russians to hack those emails. And while Don Jr. was meeting with the Russians in Trump Tower to get dirt on Clinton. The Senate Intelligence Committee, meanwhile, has also spoken with some of the Russians who were at the Trump Tower meeting with Don Jr. in June of 2016. Emails indicate Jr. eagerly went to that meeting, taking his brother-in-law and Trump's campaign chairman with him to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. That meeting remains a focus of all the Russia investigations as a possible key to a conspiracy involving both the Russian government and the Trump campaign. There were eight people in that meeting, the three Americans, a British music promoter, and four Russians, including a lawyer with close ties to the Russian government. The Senate Intelligence Committee has already spoken with the two men who accompanied Trump Jr. to that meeting, campaign chairman Paul Manafort and Trump's son-in-law advisor Jared Kushner. The committee has not yet spoken with Trump Jr. They're saving him for last. But the struggle continues between Republicans and Democrats over just how much longer the Russia investigation should last. Republicans say it's gone nowhere. Democrats say it has a way to go. Republicans in Congress are doing what they can to help the president distract from the Russia investigation. They've just launched two new investigations into Hillary Clinton, each conducted jointly by two committees in the House. 
Both the Judiciary and Oversight Committee will look into why former FBI Director James Comey announced an investigation into Clinton's handling of classified information and why he didn't mention the Trump investigation. Those Republican-led House Committee chairmen say they want to know why Comey announced in the weeks leading up to Election Day that the email investigation had been reopened. Over in the Senate, Lindsey Graham and Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley claimed that Comey had drafted a statement exonerating Clinton before he had cleared her just days before the election. Graham and Grassley say they learned this from former Comey aides who were interviewed by the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. So House Republicans will now be looking into that as well. And that's just one of the new House investigations, plural, in the Clinton the other investigation of Clinton focuses on Uranium One. Now, that refers to a uranium mining company in this country that is now majority controlled by Russia. Trump and other Republicans are ranting about how Russia got control of 20% of our uranium in a $145 billion deal from a company that had donated to the charitable Clinton Foundation. Their theory ignores the fact that uranium from that mine cannot be shipped outside of the U.S., the American uranium stays in America. The Republican theory ignores the fact that the deal was not just approved by Clinton's State Department, but by nine government agencies, and Clinton controlled only one of them. Fact-checkers say the deal was closer to $4 billion than $145 billion, as Republicans claim, and that Uranium One produces only 11% of our uranium, not the 20% that Republicans claim. But the Republicans say that's what they want to investigate. This joint investigation involves the House Intelligence Committee's Devin Nunes and Oversight Chairman Trey Gowdy. We all remember Devin Nunes. The investigation into the words and actions of James Comey is being led by Judiciary Chairman Bob Goodlatte and Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy. Gowdy, who failed repeatedly in his earlier investigations of Clinton, is now co-chair of both of the new investigations into Clinton. But various Russia investigations are starting to implode as Republicans and Democrats take separate probes in separate directions, especially now in the Senate Judiciary Committee, which would investigate obstruction of justice. Republicans are also trying to make hay with the confirmation this week of what we've known all along, that a wealthy supporter of the Democrats and Hillary Clinton paid a company, Fusion GPS, to find dirt on Donald Trump. That same company was first hired, for the same reason, by Republicans who were supporting candidates other than Trump in last year's Republican primaries. We still don't know the name or names of the original investigation's Republican backers. But it wasn't until the Democrats hired Fusion GPS that a subcontractor was brought in, retired but reliable British spy Christopher Steele. It was Steele who created the Trump-Russia dossier that Clinton and the Democrats never used, but it intrigued the FBI enough to offer to pay Steele to continue his work for the FBI after the election. That deal never came to pass since the dossier was brought to light by BuzzFeed and CNN. But the dossier, no part of which was ever proven untrue, was also the inspiration for the FBI's Trump-Russia investigation, which is now special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Also this week, Donald Trump became the first president ever to personally interview candidates for the office of U.S. attorney. He has every legal right to do so. It's just something that has never, ever been done before. For a president to meet with someone hoping to land a U.S. attorney gig blurs the line between politics and government since the Justice Department has long been mostly independent of White House politics.
So far, the president's met privately with candidates for the U.S. attorney jobs in Manhattan, Washington, D.C., and Florida, all three places in which Trump has business interest and where he could be investigated and charged. And perhaps that is why Donald Trump is the first president to personally interview the people who would be in a position to prosecute him. Also continuing is the investigation into the role that social media played in Russian interference. Now lawmakers from both parties have joined together, backing a bill to regulate political ads on digital platforms. The bill, backed by both Republican John McCain and Democrat Mark Warner, would require political ads sold online to face the same rules as political ads on TV, radio, satellite, and cable. Mainly, social media companies would be required to know and report who had purchased the ads and how much was paid for them. The ad buyer would have to be registered as a political action committee going forward. The bill would also ban the purchase of ads by foreign nationals, just as they are banned under TV rules. Even Trump's U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, has called cyber interference in our democracy an act of warfare. Representatives from Google, Facebook, and Twitter will be back on Capitol Hill next week to tell more of what they know. The lawmakers are so far not convinced the social media companies have been forthcoming. Some believe the companies may have even tried at first to cover this up. On the day that Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, a company in Montana with just two full-time employees landed a $300 million no-bid contract to restore electricity to that U.S. territory where 85% of the people are still without power. The company has hired hundreds of subcontractors to rebuild Puerto Rico's electrical grid after just two years in business. This contract is unusual. Usually, utility companies rely on help from other utility companies through their mutual aid agreements. In Puerto Rico, that contract instead went to a little company in Montana that now has a $300 million no-bid contract. Mutual aid arrangements help utilities in Texas and Florida recover quickly, but that won't happen in Puerto Rico. Many Puerto Ricans, American citizens, are facing another six months without lights. This Montana company is called Whitefish. It's based in the small town of Whitefish, Montana, where its CEO got to know Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke and where its owner made donations to President Trump and Rick Perry at the Energy Department. Congress wants answers. The Republican who oversees Puerto Rico has questions. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski wants a hearing next week, as does Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell. The death toll in Puerto Rico now stands at 74 with the spread of a bacterial disease as people continue to live without fresh water. The Nonpartisan Government Accountability Office says climate change is already costing the government, meaning taxpayers, hundreds of billions of dollars. The report says the Trump administration's failure to address climate change will drive up the cost even more. Disaster assistance and insurance coverage for crops and floods cost us $350 billion over the past decade, and that's not including this year's hurricanes and wildfires. The GAO projects the cost will be as much as $35 billion per year by 2050. This news comes as the Trump administration works to erase nearly all of the progress of the Obama administration in the battle to sharply curb man-made climate change. On Monday of this week, Trump's Environmental Protection Agency told three government scientists they could not deliver their speeches about climate change at a conference on that subject. They could still attend the conference, but they would have to keep quiet. 
The EPA was also due to release that day a 400-page report on the impact of climate change on the estuary at Narragansett Bay. An oceanography professor in Rhode Island was angry to hear this, saying that it's a blatant example of the censorship we expected to start being enforced at the EPA. They don't believe in climate change, says the professor. A chemical once used in nonstick cookware and stain-resistant carpeting has been linked to birth defects, kidney cancer, immune disorders, and other serious health issues. For years, the EPA has worked to keep that chemical out of our drinking water. Over the summer, the Trump administration rewrote a rule, so it's now harder to track and regulate that deadly chemical. Trump's EPA has also overturned a decision to ban the use of a pesticide and is reevaluating the rules on two dangerous chemicals found in paint strippers and dry cleaning. The new head of EPA's toxic chemical unit, you see, was before that an executive at a chemical industry trade group. Not surprisingly, there is anger among environmentalists and citizens over the Trump EPA, and taxpayers will not be pleased to get the bill for the incredible security detail that now surrounds EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, who's gotten death threats, 70 of which are currently under investigation. That extra security will cost taxpayers about $2 million a year, especially now that Pruitt's trying to add a dozen more security people for his round-the-clock personal protection. No EPA administrator has ever had this level of security, and certainly not 24-7, but then none has received this many death threats, five to seven times as many death threats as his predecessor. The rest of the EPA budget, meanwhile, is being cut by 30% under the Trump budget plan. Hollywood's crackdown on sexual harassment expanded this week to include director James Toback, who now faces accusations from at least 38 women. Quoting one actress, the way he presented it, it was like, this is how things are done. Another says victims who've spoken to one another about the filmmaker often say, oh no, you got toe-backed. But none of the women have yet filed criminal charges. Their accusations do appear in the New York Times, and Toback is denying the charges. Toback directed The Pickup Artist, When Will I Be Loved, Two Girls and a Guy, and The Private Life of a Modern Woman, to name a few. Now, the New York State Attorney General has begun investigating the Weinstein Company, demanding its records on harassment complaints and settlements. The goal is to see if the company violated any civil rights or anti-discrimination laws. New York police are investigating Weinstein over accusations of sexual abuse, as are police in Los Angeles and London. Harvey Weinstein himself has now completed an entire week of outpatient rehab for his sex addiction. His anger issues his attitude toward other people, his sense of social boundaries, and his empathy. Weinstein says he will stay near that clinic in Arizona for another month to keep working with his doctors, since that's a significant list of problems. Still, Weinstein denies all of the charges of non-consensual sex. He has over 30 as well, including the latest from actress Lupita Nyong'o, who starred in a couple of Star Wars movies and the Oscar-nominated 12 Years a Slave. Director Quentin Tarantino admitted this week that he knew for years about Weinstein's behavior and said nothing. I knew enough, said Tarantino, to do more than I did. Anything I say now, he added, will sound like a crappy excuse. Director Kevin Smith has promised to give to charity future profits from his Weinstein-produced movies. Smith, director of Clerks, says Weinstein, quote, financed the first 24 years of my career. While I was profiting, others were in terrible pain. 
Smith also says no effing movie is worth this. It's wrapped up in something really effing horrible. And then there's Bill O'Reilly. We learned this week, at the time Fox was signing O'Reilly to a new contract, O'Reilly had struck a $32 million out-of-court settlement to shut down the sexual harassment claims of a paid analyst at the Fox News Channel. It was O'Reilly's sixth out-of-court settlement for sexual harassment. And Fox knew about that settlement when it signed him to a deal it could escape if O'Reilly should become a liability for the network. The New York Times reports that Fox knew that the allegations in this just-settled case included that O'Reilly had sent this female co-worker explicit scenes of gay sex. And the Times says Fox knew this and signed O'Reilly just six months after he had, had fired Chairman Roger Ailes and other executives over sexual harassment claims. But in January, Rupert Murdoch and his sons decided they would stand by O'Reilly despite the early reports of harassment settlements. In February, the network, despite knowing about O'Reilly's sixth out-of-court settlement, agreed to pay the pugnacious pundit $25 million a year for another four years. He didn't last four months. As more was revealed, advertisers abandoned the show that had made Fox and O'Reilly richer. In April, O'Reilly went from being the goose that laid the golden egg to a goose egg bottom line. He was now that contractual liability, and he was fired. But this week, we learned about that sixth settlement, the concept of Bill O'Reilly sending gay porn to a woman, and that Fox apparently knew of it all when it signed him to another multi-million dollar, multi-year deal. Megyn Kelly, trying to build a new life at NBC, had heard enough from O'Reilly when he suggested that no one had ever complained about his behavior in the dozen companies that employed him over 43 years. Former Fox anchor Megyn Kelly called that claim false and added, I know because I complained. Kelly took to her new network this week to slam O'Reilly for brushing off the sexual harassment allegations. When he was asked about Kelly's allegations on CBS a year ago, O'Reilly snapped, saying he wasn't interested in discussing claims that made Fox look bad. Now, a year later, Kelly was reading the email she had written to Fox executives a year ago. In it, she warned that O'Reilly was, with his words, intimidating women who are victims of workplace harassment. She warned Fox executives a year ago that tolerating such behavior was what got the network into its Roger Ailes mess. O'Reilly calls the allegations politically and financially motivated BS, only more explicitly than that. Veteran political journalist and author Mark Halperin is also now accused of sexual harassment of five women during his time at ABC News. This morning, he was fired by his current employer, NBC News. There are 11 women who came forward to accuse Donald Trump of unwanted kissing or touching. They tell the Washington Post they want to know why these kinds of allegations bring down Bill O'Reilly and Harvey Weinstein and not Donald Trump. According to the woman who was 23 when she says Trump grabbed her at Mar-a-Lago 14 years ago, what pisses me off is that this guy is president. Quoting another alleged victim, my pain is every day with bastard Trump as president. She says Trump groped her breasts and tried to touch her genitals and managed to force a kiss. Trump has called the women horrible, horrible liars. Trump has been able to deflect these claims even after the release of a video that has him bragging about grabbing women's genitals. 
Just before the election, a Washington Post poll showed that two-thirds of unregistered voters thought Trump probably had made unwanted sexual advances on women. But Trump won the presidency anyway three weeks later with the nation distracted by Hillary's emails. While Harvey Weinstein is banished and condemned, Trump remains in the White House. Across the country, around the world, and throughout social media, women are still reporting they too were victims of sexual harassment in their workplaces. The hashtag MeToo continues to trend. There's a pattern, a vulnerable target, a powerful perpetrator, fear of retaliation, and witnesses who said nothing. And then there's this, also inspired by the Me Too campaign. Bound to a wheelchair at age 93, former President George H.W. Bush was among those accused this week. Actress Heather Lind, who stars in the AMC series Turn, Washington Spies, was on a promotional tour and in March posed with others around the former president for pictures. He touched me from behind from his wheelchair with his wife Barbara Bush by his side. He told me a dirty joke, and while being photographed, he touched me again. A spokesman for the elder statesman says President Bush would never, under any circumstance, intentionally cause distress, adding, he most sincerely apologizes if his attempt at humor offended Ms. Lind. If you're black, don't fly American Airlines into Missouri. JFK files released and a record high in the third and final segment up next. The arrival of autumn is a great time to start bringing life and color into your home. It's time to embrace the season, and I'll bet you know somebody who's in love with everything from fall colors to pumpkin spice. That's why it's the perfect time to go to proflowers.com and check out their best-selling cinnamon cider roses. It's a long-lasting bouquet that's perfect for any occasion this fall. Or you can check out their 100 autumn blooms or even a dozen of their autumn roses. And if you choose any of those items for $29 or more, Pro Flowers will take 20% off the price just because you heard about it here. The fall bouquet they sent here is absolutely breathtaking. Remember, Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. And as always, you pick the delivery date. Pro Flowers gives you more bloom for your buck. Big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use our code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. If you're black, don't fly American Airlines. That's the word from the country's oldest civil rights organization about the world's biggest airline. The NAACP is warning people of color to avoid American Airlines because of what the group calls troublesome conduct and suspicion of a corporate culture of racial insensitivity. The NAACP says it has monitored for several months a pattern of disturbing incidents involving the airline and African-American passengers. It's warning black travelers that flying American could subject them to disrespectful, discriminatory, or unsafe conditions. And the group says its latest travel advisory remains in effect until American sits down to hear what the NAACP has to say. The group issued a travel advisory just two months ago, cautioning black people about their safety in the entire state of Missouri. After it passed a law, the NAACP says legalizes discrimination. The University of Missouri says black motorists in that state are stopped by police at a rate 75% higher than whites. 
American Airlines and the Missouri Division of Tourism have no comment. In case there has been any doubt, transgenders in North Carolina may use the public restrooms that match their gender identity. So says the governor of that state that once had a so-called bathroom law until the state was pummeled with boycotts that costed hundreds of millions of dollars, scrutinized by the Obama administration, and barraged with lawsuits. The most menacing suit was filed by the American Civil Liberties Union. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper has now settled that lawsuit out of court by ordering that transgenders may use the facility that suits their identities. In the middle of August, Texas lawmakers failed in their second attempt at a bathroom bill, even with a governor there who's eager to sign it. The Trump administration is currently being sued over its ban against more transgenders serving their country in the military. Considering Trump's prickly relationship with Mexico, this comes at an unfortunate time, this being the release of the long-classified JFK files, or at least most of them. Historians say there are likely certain documents embarrassing to Mexico which would further damage the U.S. relationship with Mexico. Experts on the JFK investigation say there's not likely any bombshell revelation in today's release, nothing to disprove that just one gunman shot at Kennedy. Yesterday, Trump called the files so interesting. Historians say the documents will fill in some missing details, possibly about the U.S. government being involved in seven unsuccessful attempts to assassinate Cuba's Fidel Castro. Was it the Cuban government that enlisted Lee Harvey Oswald? That revelation would also be coming at a bad time. On advice from the Pentagon or U.S. intelligence or the State Department, some of those documents may still be withheld. On Saturday, Trump declared he'd be releasing the JFK files today, Thursday, October 26, 2017. It was the United States Congress of 1992 that decided the files would be released by today, Thursday, October 26, 2017. Many of them had already been released by the National Archives. Trump does have, under the Kennedy Assassination Records Collections Act, the right to block some of the information. But Saturday on Twitter, Trump tweeted, I will be allowing, as president, the long-blocked and classified JFK files to be opened, as if it were his idea. It was due to happen today anyway, thanks to a law passed nearly a quarter century ago. My hero, tweeted Roger Stone. Now, 64% of adults in the U.S. support legalizing marijuana, 64%. The Gallup poll started asking about this in 1969, and back then only 12% of American adults thought this was a good idea. By 1979, that number had more than doubled, but then held steady in the 80s and 90s. But then, by 2001, it was 34%. It had tripled. By 2013, a majority of Americans supported legalization. Last year, that number hit 60%. This year, it's 64. Nearly two in three of us now favor legalizing it. Even a majority of Republicans favor that now. And that is a record high. Marijuana is still illegal at the federal level and a target of the Trump administration, especially at the hands of Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who once said the pot smoking in the Ku Klux Klan is what kept him from joining that group. Sessions favors going after marijuana users now in states where such use is by state law legal. Eight states have legalized recreational weed. Medical is legal in 29 states, 
plus the nation's capital. The state of New York has now banned e-cigarettes everywhere smoking was already banned. It's a revision of the state's Clean Indoor Air Act and another move to classify e-cigarettes alongside other tobacco products. The new law is based on the premise that vapor from e-cigarettes contains nicotine and other chemicals that have long-term health risks for those who breathe that vapor. Meanwhile, the debate continues over the safety of e-cigarettes for those who inhale them. A recent project from Georgetown researchers said cigarette smokers would live much longer by switching to the electronic version. It said millions of lives could be saved even using worst-case statistics. But another new study now from the University of North Carolina says e-cigarette vapors can trigger some of the same damage to your immune system as cigarettes and some new ones that smoked cigarettes don't trigger. And last month, researchers in Sweden found that nicotine from e-cigarettes can harden arteries, increasing the risk for strokes and heart attacks. Earlier this year, University of Connecticut researchers found that both smoke and vapor will damage your DNA. The North Carolina study addressed the immune system. Like burned cigarettes, e-cigs trigger the same immune responses, including bronchitis and asthma. The North Carolina researchers say it's too early to take any of these studies as definitive that this research is really just beginning. Passings and Passages One of the fathers of rock and roll and architect of the genre died this week at age 89. In the 1940s, Antoine Domino Jr. worked in a New Orleans mattress factory by day and played piano in bars at night. One of the band leaders for whom he played called him Fats. And Fats Domino so rocked the house, Imperial Records signed him right off the stage. His first recording was The Fat Man. But he hit the R&B charts nearly five dozen times and more than five dozen in the pop charts. He sold 65 million records over five decades. In the 1950s, Fats Domino sold more records than Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and Buddy Holly combined. The song Blueberry Hill had already been recorded by Glenn Miller, Gene Autry, and Louis Armstrong, but Fats Domino made it his own in 1956. He attracted audiences white and black. His appearances segregated in the South with a rope between the black and white halves of the audience. His tour bus was greeted with burning crosses in South Carolina. Like other stars of that era, the star of Fats Domino faded with the British invasion, but he remained an American icon. Fats Domino played out at 89. Also passing at 89, actor Robert Guillaume, best known for his role as the truth-to-power-speaking Benson Dubois, first on Soap and then on his own series, Benson. That role won Guillaume an Emmy in 1985. He had dozens of other TV roles, including a key role in Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night. Times have indeed changed. That's why the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus isn't around anymore. It's why they just laid off 350 people at SeaWorld. Most of the jobs are described as administrative, but there'll also be fewer workers at the theme parks in San Diego and Orlando. The company blames poor attendance, which it attributes to public perception issues. Those issues accelerated sharply four years ago when the documentary Blackfish exposed the company's treatment of its killer whales. That ship has sailed. Attendance dropped by over 350,000 just in the first six months of this year. Working in the CIA's explosives unit is not for everybody. That's why Lulu doesn't work there anymore. 
The one-and-a-half-year-old black Labrador was part of the agency's puppy class for bomb-sniffing dogs. Most of the dogs selected for the program take right to it, not Lulu. The CIA has announced on Twitter that Lulu just wasn't enjoying the work. A few weeks in, says the tweet, Lulu began to show signs she wasn't interested in detecting explosives. Even when motivated with food and play, says the agency, she was clearly no longer enjoying herself. Lulu has since sniffed out a new career as a canine companion for the family of her handler. Many of us, most of us perhaps, have suffered the blow of losing a beloved pet. In New Jersey, Carrie and Lonnie Levy took their friend Caesar to the vet in the middle of May to be put down. The miniature pincher was 15 years old and suffering from a long-term illness that had gradually eaten away at his quality of life and had at that point become life-threatening. It was time to ease this family member's suffering and say goodbye. Carrie returned later to pick up his collar, pay the bill, and soon after got a letter from the vet's office expressing condolences on the Levy's loss of Caesar. And then, last week, five months later, Carrie and Lonnie got word that Caesar was still alive. A person protecting their own anonymity told the Levies that Caesar was living with a technician who worked at the veterinary clinic. They learned that their vet, who has since retired, had granted permission for the tech to take Caesar home instead of putting him down. The Levies called the police. The police called the Monmouth County SPCA. Now, both agencies are investigating a case that could lead to charges of theft and possibly animal cruelty, depending on the care that Caesar did or didn't get over these past five months. That tech no longer works at that clinic under its new ownership, which has refunded the Levies the cost of euthanizing Caesar. Quoting the new owner, it's hard enough you have to decide a pet should pass, but you have to deal with that twice with the same pet? It's just unthinkable. But our beloved animals lift our spirits, as do most animal stories. From the home office in Florida. Loretta is a Rhode Island red, as in chicken. While other paddle boarders in the Keys take their dogs out on the water, Loretta the Rhode Island red is out there with them. Carly Venezia is the chicken's human and therefore does the paddling while Loretta stands calmly and proudly, keeping her balance as the two drift across the water on a paddleboard. Carly thinks her chicken enjoys seeing the sunsets while rocking the ripples. Carly says Loretta also enjoys boating. When it comes to water, Loretta isn't chicken at all. She's a chicken of the sea. And if you think your DirecTV bill is too high, in this age of mergers, DirecTV merged with AT&T a couple of years ago, and the expanded company started offering bundles. Your satellite TV bill combined with your cell phone bill, what could possibly go wrong? Ohio's Angela Mixon-Smith says she nearly had a heart attack when she opened her bill. I mean, says Angela, my chest got heavy. I had to get some water. Most of us might have felt the same to see a bill totaling $184,530.67, nearly one hundred eighty-five grand since April. I don't have that kind of money, says Angela. I don't drink, she says, adding, I was ready to drink. AT&T has apologized, crediting Angela's account, and says it has reached out to Angela to try to resolve this issue. AT&T says it's looking into just what happened. Angela says they just don't have it together. 
If you find yourself in Long Beach, California, and crave the taste of New Orleans-style fried chicken, the owner of the Sweet Dixie Kitchen serves what she says is the best fried chicken anywhere. But the reviews on Yelp are unkind, starting with this account from a guy named Tyler. Before my friends and I got seated, we saw them quickly bring in two large boxes of Popeyes. Tyler says he had ordered the chicken and waffles. He says the chicken tasted like Popeyes. In his Yelp review, Tyler wrote, I asked our waiter how they cooked their chicken. After checking, he admitted they do, in fact, use Popeyes. The manager comped us the entire meal. The Sweet Dixie Kitchen responded bitterly on Yelp to its many new critics. We proudly serve Popeye's spicy tenders, the best fried chicken anywhere, delivered twice a day. We also, in case you need to know, buy our gumbo from a friend who sells it at a local farmer's market. We promote local small batch producers on our menu. The exception is Popeye's, the fried chicken I love so much. Did I mention the bitterness? We also don't mill our flour or grow our own veggies, said the restaurant in its response. Quoting owner Kimberly Sanchez, I'm in tears at my house, like inconsolable. We didn't do anything wrong. I tried Costco chicken. I tried Restaurant Depot chicken. And then I went to dinner at Popeye's, and I knew this was the chicken we had to use. It was the best product I could bring in. You don't want to eat it? Don't eat it. And then the fascinating truth comes out. Quoting Kimberly, my kitchen is not set up for frying. We're an old building. I don't actually have a proper kitchen back there at the Sweet Dixie Kitchen. At the beginning of October, Selena Daly went to a wine tasting at McNeese State University and got very, very drunk. She passed out in the car as she was being driven home by a friend. When she awoke, when she awoke, she was in jail, charged with public intoxication and assaulting an officer. Selena Daly could not remember what had happened in between, but she felt absolutely terrible about it. So she baked a cookie cake and sent it to the officer she's accused of assaulting. Scrolled in icing on that cookie cake are the words, Sorry, I tried to bite you. In the Canadian province of Quebec, a young man was driving and singing as he motored through Saint Laurent. He was belting out Everybody Dance Now by CNC Music Factory. Some of the notes he noticed were beginning to clash with a police siren closing in from behind. I was thinking they wanted to pass, says the young singer, but they called on the speaker, please go to the right side. He says four officers approached his car, four, two on each side of the young man's car, looking in through the windows. They asked the driver if he had been screaming. No, said the singing driver. I was just listening to my favorite song, Everybody Dance Now. No, concluded police, you were screaming. And screaming is illegal in Quebec. The young man is appealing his ticket, adding, I don't know if my voice was very bad, and that's why I got the ticket. A Canadian listener wrote this week to say, I know you don't cover local Canadian news, but I thought you'd dig this headline. Shoeless thief in blonde wig steals smokes at knife point. It sounds like a Florida headline, but it's from Dundas, a suburb of Hamilton, Ontario. A man about 40 years old, short, with an athletic build, walked into an establishment called Max Milk. But he wasn't there for milk. He asked for a pack of cigarettes. When the clerk retrieved his brand, the man took it, pulled an 8-inch knife, and ran out the door. The man was wearing a white tank top, but also a bra, 
and a black miniskirt and a wig and heavy makeup. Police say they have retrieved the store's security video but have not yet decided whether to release it to the public. And finally, an Oklahoma sheriff's deputy has had a run-in with a slippery character. When he pulled over the vehicle doing 57 and a 45, the deputy found a man wearing nothing but a thong and a fair amount of Vaseline all over his body, including his hands, which must have made it tough to steer. The sheriff's officer observed an open jar of Vaseline nearby along with a porn magazine. The greasy driver's license which had been wiped with something other than the rag the man had with him, revealed that our slippery character is John Wayne, John Wayne Kellerman, and that his license expired in 1985. Given the evidence, the deputy asked Kellerman if he had been pleasuring himself while driving. Kellerman admitted he had. So after doing 27 years for auto theft and narcotics possession, John Wayne Kellerman was now being arraigned for speeding and driving on an expired license. He is apparently not facing any charges for driving in a thong with a magazine while covered in Vaseline. The sergeant who arrived at the arrest scene to take possession of the car was advised, quote, that the driver's area in the vehicle was extremely greasy. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.